You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. All right, now if you would, please bring your attention to the reading of God's Word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sounds, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born out of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent into the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We have been walking our way through the Gospel of John this semester in RUF, specifically looking at the passages where Jesus encounters people in one-on-one settings and has these really fascinating dialogues and conversations with them. And tonight we're going to look at a passage that's uh, this famous encounter that Jesus has with this dude named Nicodemus, which is a wonderful name, Nicodemus. And uh, to set this passage up, I want to tell you a little bit about my own story before we get into this. Uh, some of you might know, because I've, you know me, that I became a Christian the summer after my sophomore year in high school. So I became a Christian that summer, and so then for the next two years, my junior year and my senior year, here's what my basic schedule looked, my weekly schedule looked like my junior and senior year of high school. Sunday morning, we would have a youth group thing that would gather before what we called big church, and so we'd we'd have kind of a youth group meeting, Sunday morning, kind of Sunday school, then we'd all go to big church, and then the rest of the day was whatever, and then that night... I, me and some buddies helped lead like a guy's prayer night, Sunday night at my high school. Then Monday night was Young Life Club. And then Tuesday night, I would drive across town. There was a big Bible study that was led by this guy named Dion Sanders. Some of you might know who that is. Um, Wednesday, I helped lead a devotional uh, thing for FCA. Like we did a lunch. FCA had a lunch thing on our campus. And so in high school, every Wednesday, I helped lead that. Then Wednesday night was, of course, youth group, Wednesday night youth group. Thursday was Young Life Campaigners. And then I took uh, 
Friday and Saturday off. So I was really cool in high school. And then um, go to college. In my freshman year of college, I went through Quest and I eventually became a Young Life leader. I was involved in the BCM, kind of large group. So every week I'd go to their big meeting. And then I was also involved with a prayer group from the BCM. Uh, I went to the crew uh, large group thing every single week. Um, I was involved in not one, but two churches. And um, I was involved in a Bible study that some of my buddies and I helped lead on our hall in our uh, dorm. And then by my sophomore year in college, I just completely bottomed out. I was exhausted. I was empty. I was angry. Uh, I was convinced intellectually that Christianity was true, but like my experience of it was just that it sucked. It's like being a Christian was the worst. As exhausted as I was and as much stuff as I was doing, I felt like I wasn't doing enough. Uh, I didn't know what to do with my guilt. I was angry at all the other Christians on my campus for not being as devoted and as holy as I was. And I was angry at all of the people that weren't Christians on my campus because they were having a lot more fun than I was. And uh, I was angry because I thought that they were stupid for not believing in God like I did. And so I was angry, I was exhausted, and I was empty despite being extremely religiously busy. I remember we would sing that song, Jesus satisfies all my longings. And I was like, not mine. (laughs) Like, we'd sing that song, like, I don't feel satisfied. And the reason I begin that way is because I, you know, we're going to look at this guy named Nicodemus, and I think his story is very similar to mine. He's extremely religiously busy, extremely religiously involved, and yet he's incredibly empty. What do we know about Nicodemus right from the start? In verse 1, we find out two details about Nicodemus that's pretty interesting. It says that he is a man of the Pharisees, and he's a ruler of the Jews. To be a man of the Pharisees meant that you were a member of an elite, Bible-believing, scholastic club. That's what the Pharisees were. To be a ruler of the Jews meant that you were a member of like the Sanhedrin, which was the Israeli Supreme Court. So this guy's like a big deal. In fact, if you look at verse 10, later on in the passage, Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. He doesn't just say, hey, you're, you're a teacher in Israel. You're like the highest ranking biblical scholar here. So you put all that together, Nicodemus, is, he's a big deal. He would have been, you know, he's an Ivy League grad with multiple degrees after his name. One pastor that I was listening to about this passage referred to him as the Reverend Professor Doctor. This guy, this guy is, um, so, some scholars think this guy was the most wealthy slash politically influential man in the country. This guy would have been like, he's got, the, he's got an incredible resume, he's incredibly accomplished, he's disciplined, he works out every day, it, tons of people, everyone would have downloaded his podcast, he has a million followers on Twitter, he's got a beautiful family and a giant house in Sequoia. This is the guy that... <laughs> everybody hates because secretly everybody wants to be. It's like, this is a great guy. He's an awesome guy. He's incredibly uh, influential, important. And yet for all of his religious activity and achievements and accomplishments, he's empty. And you know this is true because in verse 2, it says that he goes to Jesus at night. Meaning he thinks maybe deep down, Jesus has something to offer me that I'm missing. But I don't want anybody else to know that I feel empty. 
I'm embarrassed to be associated with this guy named Jesus, so I'm just going to kind of secretly see if maybe he has something to offer. And this conversation is amazing because Jesus tells Nicodemus, and through the story, us as well, tells us what we really need and then how we get it. And so that's what I want to look at with you tonight. What do we truly need? How do we get it? Let's look at what we need. Uh, Look at the story. It begins with this reverend professor, Dr. Nicodemus, approaching Jesus. And in verse 2, he he affirms him. He, He calls him rabbi. And he says, you know, we know that you come from God. You're doing all this amazing stuff. And Jesus interrupts him in verse 3, and here's what he says. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's a random thing to say to somebody. Come up to somebody, hey, man, like, you're awesome. We're we're all big fans of you. Can't even see the kingdom unless you're born again. So this this is a weird thing. What does he mean when he says... You can't, you can't be a part of my kingdom. You can't even see it unless you're born again. Because that phrase, I mean, especially in the South, I mean, that phrase has such funky connotations. To be a born-again Christian. Are you born again? And I think that it's, it's such a weird phrase. What does he mean by that? This is the only time he uses this language. What does he mean? Okay, well, let's um, think about your own birth for a second. What involvement did you have with your birth? Like, what did you contribute to that process? Nothing. You did nothing. You didn't get to choose who your parents were. You didn't get to choose what century you were born in. You didn't get to choose which geographic spot you just showed up in. I mean, you are 100% passive in the process, right? You just, birth was something that just happened to you. You just appeared. That was your involvement in your birth. And so Jesus is looking at this guy and saying to him, What you most desperately need is to be remade. You need to become a new person. You need a complete spiritual overhaul and transformation. And in the same way that you had nothing to do with your physical birth, you you can have nothing to do with your spiritual birth. You are completely incapable of making yourself be reborn. That is something that God the Spirit has to do to you. Now, I don't know if you're, uh, I don't know if you're, do people watch The Walking Dead anymore? I, I was, we got two people. Two people still watch The Walking Dead. I used to be a big fan. I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm thrown in the towel. I, I think I'm quitting. It, too much drama, not enough zombies, but whatever. Uh, but anyway, that's not the point. The point is, picture in your mind, you know, a female zombie from the show The Walking Dead. And the question is, what would you do to make that zombie become human again? Let's say your plan is, okay, let's take this zombie, this lady zombie, and um, let's go to the spa and give her a nice long bath with some strong exfoliating soaps and um, get the grime off. And then after the spa, let's go to the salon and really wash that nasty hair and let's let's get her a cute trim, maybe swing by Anthro and pick her up a, a, a nice outfit, and uh, maybe on the way home, you know, throw in a mani and a petty. And um, if that was your plan, would that make that zombie become human again? Uh, It would make that zombie, um, uh, it would smell better, it would look cleaner, it would be better manicured, but it's still an undead monster that's trying to eat you, right? And my point is, 
That thing needs a deep transformation to its very nature if it's going to become human again. And so here's the point. Jesus is looking at this guy with all of his religious accomplishments and his stacked up resume and everything that he's doing, and he's saying to him, you're basically just a well-manicured zombie. You're spiritually dead. You look great. You smell great. Everybody loves you. You've got an amazing resume. None of it matters. And you need to let that settle in for a second because he just told somebody that has everything that you want not good enough. That's pretty frustrating. I mean, that's pretty, like, offensive. What's, what, what's he getting at? Jesus is drawing this really important distinction that I want to highlight here and make explicit. Jesus is assuming there is a big difference between being religious and being born again. Or to use different language, there is a massive difference between just changing your behavior and actually changing as a person. You can change your behavior and do Christian religious-y stuff and it, because it has nothing to do with Jesus, you're not actually changing. You're just rearranging the surface, but your heart isn't being transformed. There was this pastor um, over, over a half a century ago now. His name was um, Donald Gray Barnhouse. Was it Barnhouse? Barnhouse. And he used to do, he, he, he did a ministry in Philadelphia, and he would record these sermons and CBS, believe it or not, would nationally broadcast his sermons to like the country. And one sermon that he was incredibly famous for, this was, you know, 50 years ago or so, he had this thought experiment and he said, what would, what would the city of Philadelphia look like if Satan just completely took over and ran the city? And you know, your instinct is, well, if Satan took, takes over the city, it's just going to be anarchy and chaos and everyone's going to be killing each other and it's going to be b- bananas. <laughs> And he says, here's his quote. Here's what he says. No, uh, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other, and there would be no swearing, and the children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. A safe, good, comfortable city, but has nothing to do with Jesus. There's a way of doing Christianity that completely misses Jesus, where it is just busyness and activity. And Christianity essentially becomes self-improvement. If Jesus is not a part of it, Christian activity is just like jogging. It's like, I don't like how I feel, I want to feel better about myself, so I'm just going to try hard, I'm going to be nice, I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to come to stuff like RUF and do Bible study-ish stuff, and isn't that what God wants? God wants me to be nice and good and hardworking and do religious stuff, right? And Jesus is saying there's a massive difference between doing religious stuff and actually being transformed and being born again. And I think, if we're honest, there is a danger of doing Christianity at UT and in Knoxville where you can do Christian stuff and miss Jesus. Because it's, I think it's really easy, especially at UT, to do Christian stuff in such a way where, unfortunately, it's just largely about your image. It's about having an extroverted and fun personality. That Christianity is about being a good guy or a good girl. That Christianity boils down to 
uh, Instagramming your devotions and uh, being a virgin and not partying. And it's just all about status and competition. It's very easy at a place like UT for that to be your Christian experience and it's all about you. It has nothing to do with him. And Jesus is saying what you most desperately need is not to be better organized. It's not that you need more discipline. It's not that you need more stuff to do. What you need is a deep, pervasive inner transformation. You need to be born again. So, okay, how do you get it? That's the second question. If that's what we need, we need to be made new. We're just zombies walking around that are well manicured. We're just that nice, beautiful, pristine city that has nothing to do with Jesus. If that's us, some of us, and we need to be born again, how do we get it? Well, let's look. Uh, Jesus, I think, tells us uh, he wants us to have two responses to this. And the first response that I think he wants from us is he wants us to get in touch with our helplessness. He wants us to come to terms with the fact that we actually are desperate. Let me show you where I get this from. Look at what Nicodemus says in verse 4. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, I used to think that Nicodemus was like a total idiot. He's like, wait a second, I'm a grown man, and I don't know, am I supposed to climb into my mom's uterus? Like, I don't understand the mechanics of that. Like, that's literally what he just said in the Bible, by the way. Um, He's not an idiot. Remember, he's the reverend professor, you know, doctor guy. And so he's smart. He understands that Jesus is saying... You're incapable of transforming yourself. And so he's asking the same question you're asking, which is, if I'm incapable of transforming myself, if I can't fix myself, then what do I do? What am I supposed to do with that? In fact, he's basically saying, tell me what I need to do, Jesus, because that's how he responds to everything in his life. Tell me what I need to do. This is how he lives his life. I take notes. I figure out what I need to do. I create my to-do list. I crush a Red Bull, and then I go out and do it. He's a doer. He gets stuff done. That's why his resume is so stacked and so impressive because he's a doer and he gets it done. But don't you see that question by saying, what do I need to do, shows that he doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. Jesus says, you can't do anything. So what do I need to do? And so Jesus, he turns up the heat on him and he uses the second metaphor. He talked about the born again metaphor and now he uses the second one. And let me read it to you, verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, think about the wind. And for us, like think about like Hurricane Irma that just kind of blew through. You cannot control the wind. You cannot manage it. You cannot manipulate it. You cannot generate it. And Jesus is saying it's actually the same way with the spirit. In fact, in Greek, the word wind and spirit is the same word. He's saying the Holy Spirit is the same way. You cannot control the Holy Spirit. You cannot manage him. You cannot, you cannot manipulate him. You can't jump through enough hoops to try to get him to do stuff for you. You are completely at his mercy. Now, uh, he is pressing Jesus to come, he's pressing Nicodemus to come to terms with how utterly helpless he is. You can't do anything. You cannot fix yourself. You cannot transform yourself. You cannot heal yourself. 
you can't do anything. Now, if you're anything like me, that's extremely frustrating. Because you hear that and you're like, well, then what, am I, what do I do? And Jesus is like, no, 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 that's the wrong question. As soon as you ask, what can, what can I do? You've misunderstood what I'm talking about. And then you're like, I don't even have a question. What can I ask? Like, help? What, 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 how do you respond? And this, this reminds me of um, a number of years ago when we lived in Charlotte. I was seeing a counselor, and I was, I was coming to terms. Like, I was, I was getting exposed to how much of a control freak I really am. I was kind of seeing for the first time in my life, oh, my gosh, I control what people's, I want people's opinions to be of me are. I control my environment. I want to control my wife. I want to control my whole life. It's hard for me to trust God because I'm such a control freak. And I'm seeing this kind of ugly thing in me, and I look at my counselor, and I'm like, so, like, what do I do? Like, tell me what to do. And he kind of, like, gives me this smile like counselors sometimes do where they, like, they see through you and they know you more than you know yourself. And he goes, wait, are you asking me to help you control how much of a control freak you are? Are you wanting to get that controlling impulse under control? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> He's like, but you're, you're st- don't you see, you're still doing it. You're still being a control freak about your control freakness. And then I'm like, help? I don't, you don't know what to say. I can't even ask what I want to ask. And that's the point. And that's where Nicodemus gets. Look at verse 9. He goes, how can these things be? Like he's no longer asking the what, what do I do question. He's just saying, uh, help? What? I don't, even, I don't even know how to respond. And that's the point. Jesus is pressing Nicodemus to get to this point to admit, stop, ask, stop asking the what do I do question. It's the wrong question. You can't do anything. Because by you asking that question, you still think you can do something. Wrong question. He's pressing him and he's pressing us to get to this place where we just have to admit, I'm helpless. I, 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 don't, I, I don't even know what to do. Why would Jesus press us to get to that place, to come to terms with how desperate and helpless we really are? And here's why. Because we will never, ever ask for help until we get there. You will never ask for help unless you realize that you need it, Right? You will never ask Jesus or anybody for help if you still think that you can do it. This is what's so frustrating about watching my daughter play Angry Birds. I give my daughter the iPad, like, let's play Angry Birds. And she, you know, you, know, you, you pull the slingshot down and then the thing shoots up, the bird shoots up. She doesn't understand the physics of it, so she pulls the slingshot up and it just drills the bird into the ground <laughs> every single time. And I'm so just like wanting to like help her. And so she's drilling the bird in the ground over and over and over. I'm like, Zoe, Kate, let, let me help you. Let me show you how to do it. And she's like, no, I'm going to do it myself. I can do it. Okay? You do it yourself. And she's not having fun. I'm not having fun. We're both frustrated. She's dying over and over and over and over. <laughs> and as long as the thing in your heart is, I got this. I can do this. I don't need any help. Just tell me what to do. Give me the three steps, the, the four principles, and I'll go out and do it. If that is the heart, if that is your heartbeat, then you're going to go out and just die over and over and over and over and over again. And Jesus is lovingly, graciously, directly, boldly trying to get us to this place to admit, I, I, I can't fix myself. I can't heal myself. I can't transform myself. I'm actually the problem. So the problem can't fix itself. I need something outside of myself. 
What he's doing is he's saying, take your eyes off of you as the solution and look to me. And that's the second response. The first response is, come to terms with your helplessness. And the second response is then look to Jesus. And here's where I get this from. If you jump ahead, look at, um, look at verse 14. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now again, Nicodemus is this Old Testament scholar, right? He knows the Bible well, and so Jesus goes deep into the Bible and pulls out this obscure reference to this story from the book of Numbers. You're all familiar with the book of Numbers, right? Numbers chapter 21, he references this weird story about the Moses and the snake thing. And here's just a quick summary of that story. People of Israel are in the wilderness. And there's all these poisonous snakes that start to infiltrate their camp. And these snakes are biting people and people are dying. And so they all start crying out to God for help. And so God goes to Moses and says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a bronze serpent, wrap it around a pole, lift that pole in the air and so that anybody that looks, if they just look to the snake on a pole, they will be healed. So people get bitten, poison infects their body. All they do, all they have to do is just look to that snake on a pole, lift it up, and they'll be healed. That's the story. And Jesus says, what Moses did in the wilderness, that's what I'm doing on the cross. Just as Moses lifted up that snake on a pole in the wilderness, that's me on the cross being lifted up. Whoever looks to this snake on a cross, this snake on a pole, will be healed. All you have to do is just look. All you have to do is just turn your attention to me as the source, as the solution, as the thing that can heal you, and you'll be healed. You know, snakes have such an interesting kind of symbolic nature in the Bible Serpents kind of represent the curse of sin, the poison of sin. You know, sin entered into the world by a serpent. And Jesus is saying, I will become the curse of sin for you. I will become the poison of your sin lifted up on a cross so that all you have to do is look to me. I will become sin and you will become the righteousness of God. You will be healed. But all you have to do is look at me. And the reason why Nicodemus doesn't look to Jesus and the reason why many of us don't look to Jesus is because why would you when you have everything? I got the resume. I got the work ethic. I'm a good person. I'm a nice person. I I work hard. You're looking at yourself. Jesus is saying, you're the problem. Take your eyes off of you. Simply look to me. You don't have to do anything. Just look. And you'll be healed. A number of years ago, I heard this amazing story. It took place in Arizona. There was this mom walking her two-year-old daughter and their dog, I guess, through the city. And uh, the dog kind of ran on ahead, and so the, the little girl ran on ahead. And so the, the, they were kind of out of eyesight from the mom for just a second. And the girl, I'm a little unclear on how, on what actually happened, but apparently there was like this uh, plastic cover on the ground that when this little girl stepped on this cover in the city, she fell through to what was underneath. And apparently what was underneath was like a septic tank, like a giant vat of human waste. And so this little girl plunges in, sinks into this, gross, disgusting sewage. 
The mom catches up, you know, screams out for help. These two guys run up to see what's going on. The first guy dives in face first into the sewage, comes up immediately because he inhaled and swallowed some of the stuff. So he's gagging, he's coughing, he catches his breath, closes his eyes, and goes back under, and he goes and searches for a few moments, comes up, and he's got nothing. So the other guy jumps in headfirst, and he's searching around, and the report goes that after maybe three to four minutes, they pull this lifeless body out of the sewage, and they put her on the ground, covered in filth. By now, this crowd had formed, and one of the, one of the women that was kind of in this crowd uh, knew how to do CPR, and so she gets down and you know, puts her mouth right on the mouth of all this gross stuff that's all over this poor girl, and she's administering CPR and doing the pumping thing, and eventually, slowly, the little girl starts coughing and coughs up all this yuck and starts breathing again, and she's, brought, she's alive, brought back to life. What's so amazing about that story is these rescuers were so committed to rescuing that girl that they didn't care that they had to jump into filth to get her. She was drowning, swallowing, encompassed in sewage, and they went in after her and didn't mind that they got covered in it too. And that is the gospel. Jesus is saying, you are, you, you are drowning, you are dead, drowning in your own, the sewage of your sin and of your religious pride and of that thing in you that wants no help from God, I can do it myself, that self-assertion, that self-will, that I don't need anybody help, that thing in us is what is drowning us. And Jesus, out of love and pure grace, plunges into the filth of this world and the filth of our stories, and he gets covered with it. He drowns in it to pull us out and to give us life. And I'll say this, if that's, if that's your story, not just, yeah, I believe that. I believe that Jesus died for my sin. Anybody can believe that. But when that becomes your story, when you look to Jesus, do you know what that does? That starts to transform you. That starts to heal that thing in you. So now Jesus starts to become beautiful to you instead of just useful to you. Uh, You find yourself willing to repent more. You find yourself growing to become more gentle, more gracious, more empathetic, more willing to listen. Uh, You're slower to become angry. Uh, You take yourself less seriously. You start to develop a love for God's word and and, and for prayer and his church. You don't don't think less of yourself, but you start to think of yourself less. In other words, your life really does end up slowly becoming about God and other people instead of just using God to make other people think that you're awesome. You become born again. Now, we could end here, but I want to show you one more observation, and then we're done. You know, this is, this is not the only time that Nicodemus shows up in, this, in the book of John. He shows up two other places. He leaves this conversation with Jesus. It's nighttime. Nicodemus leaves and he's silent and he's probably offended and he's angry. It's awkward, like right now. And um, he shows up again in John chapter 7. Remember, he's on the Supreme Court. He's He's on the Sanhedrin. And that whole council is getting together and they're talking about how Jesus should be arrested because he's causing all this trouble. And Nicodemus kind of sticks his neck out and says, Hey, don't you think that we should give him a fair trial, kind of like our law says? 
And everybody else on the court snaps back at him and says, shut up, you're an idiot. And so you see this little shift, a little willingness to kind of like defend Jesus. And then at the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 19, Nicodemus shows up after Jesus has died. And Nicodemus is, is listed as one of the men that comes to take his dead, lifeless body and embalm it to get ready for his burial. And it says that he brings with him hundreds of pounds of spices, which would have been so over the top and extravagant that you would have only done, done something like that for royalty. Which means here at the end of the story, Nicodemus comes forward and is publicly identifying with Jesus, publicly willing to give his resources for the sake of Jesus and identify with him. And what that tells me is, we don't know all the details, but somewhere between this conversation and John chapter 3 until where you get to the end, somewhere along the line, Nicodemus experienced the new birth. He looked to Jesus and he was healed. Jesus became precious to him, uh, everything to him. So much so he was willing to risk his career, his identity, his reputation to be publicly associated with this guy. And here's the final thought. Here's what this tells me. That the love of God is better and it's more powerful than you think it is. Because some of you here tonight might be so entrenched in your performance-addicted, self-oriented, religious workaholism, and everything about this passage is just grating against you, and it's offending you, and it's insulting you because you're a good person. But Nicodemus' story tells me that there's hope for people like you and for people like me, that the promise is still true, that if you just look to Jesus, you will be healed. You will be born again. And that is an invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, would you be kind and gracious to us to pry our eyes off of ourselves and to direct them onto your Son. And I pray that that would free us. I pray that that would renew us. I pray that that would, that that, that your Spirit would overwhelm our nature in such a way that we would be transformed. For those of us in here tonight that are religious and involved and are leaders and yet have no sense of your love and your kindness and your grace towards them, I pray, Spirit, that you would overthrow their hearts and just like Nicodemus, give them eyes to see. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.